This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Amber Polakowski, Cardiovascular Quality Excellence Leader at St. Joseph Mercy Health System based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Amber, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Now, first off, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Um, So again, as you mentioned, my name is Amber Polakowski. I'm a quality excellence leader for cardiovascular services at St. Joe's Mercy in Arbor. We are a 537 bed teaching facility um, in um, Southeast Michigan. Um, As part of the uh, Trinity Health System, which spans 92 acute care hospitals across the country. Um, In my role, I oversee quality for our cardiology, uh, cardiac surgery and vascular services at St. Joe's. Um, and, you know, historically, I'm a nurse, uh, so I have a background in critical care nursing. I have a master's in clinical nurse leadership, um, and I have been, you know, doing this role at St. Joe's for the past four years. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited to dive right in. First, what are your top priorities today, and how do you see them evolving in the next 12 months? So I think, obviously, you know, with COVID and the COVID-19 pandemic, especially, you know, if you've been watching the news recently, you know, Michigan is a state that's been particularly um, hard hit by COVID. So really right now, you know, even day to day, looking at, you know, daily operations and, and continuing to try to understand what our new normal is going to look like. I think many healthcare systems across the country can relate to the fact that over the past year, we've really been trying to um, just, you know, figure out the day to day operations. But looking forward and, you know, looking ahead, really excited to see sort of what our new healthcare landscape looks like um, post-pandemic. Really particularly, I think that um, telehealth is going to be something that, you know, you just can't, you know, you can't listen to a podcast or, um, you know, read healthcare uh, literature at this point without hearing about telehealth. So I'm very excited to see over the next 12 months how that impacts our, you know, our strategy and, you know, healthcare delivery as a whole. Um, I think there's huge opportunity there, um, and I definitely think that that will be a priority moving forward to see how we can sort of operationalize those services for our communities. Um, I also think looking at our workforce and telecommuting clearly has, um, you know, I think healthcare in general, historically, we have not been huge embracers of um, remote workforce. Uh, Some of that clearly is dictated by the work that we do. Um, You know, we need people um, at the bedside to take care of patients, and clearly that's extremely important. Um, But looking beyond that, especially to some of those roles that can be remote, um, you know, and some of those support staff roles and administrative roles, really looking to see, you know, how will that change our our landscape and our healthcare environment? And I think many healthcare systems across the country are looking to see, you know, will these services or or, or will this telecommuting continue past um, the pandemic and how will we all communicate with each other? You know, I can say from my personal experience, there's been times where things, you know, happen actually a lot more quickly, I think, operationalizing a meeting, you know, via Zoom or, um, you know, whatever platform is being used sometimes can be a lot um, quicker to bring to fruition than, you know, trying to get everybody together in person. So um, definitely some benefits. And I think, you know, over the next year, again, really prioritizing what does our workforce look like and, you know, how things changed. Um, I think, specifically to cardiology and um, cardiovascular services, same-day discharges. Um, You know, I think that prior to COVID, there was definitely momentum around same-day discharge, specifically, I would say, around PCI. That is where I think we were hearing a lot about same-day discharges prior to COVID. Um, Moving forward, though, over the next year or so, you know, I think that those um, services will continue to expand and really 
help us better understand, you know, where can we offer these services to patients in terms of, you know, you come in, you get your procedure and you go home the same day. Um, where is it safe to do that? And, you know, where do our communities want to see those services offered? Um, so I think same day discharges, not only for PCI, but um, watchmen and other procedures like that, really seeing a lot of, um, you know, additional uh, information about that in the literature. And I think that'll be a priority, priority for our area moving forward to see uh, how we can operationalize. Got it. You know, that's really interesting to think about, especially um, the last point you were mentioning in terms of more of the same day discharges. Do you see that, uh, you know, affecting the way that um, the cardiology line is kind of designed going forward? You know, it's a really, it's an interesting question. You know, I certainly think um, that in terms of staffing, I think the number of PCIs, you know, I don't think that that's going to be drastically impacted by same-day discharge. So I don't know in terms of the cardiology workforce if we'll see that, you know, that much difference. Um, one thing that I wonder about is how it really will, you know, affect payment models moving forward. And I don't think we know what that's going to look like. Um, but, you know, we've seen other services and other service lines, you know, ortho is one particularly, particularly where we've seen payers, you know, CMS and others say these procedures are now, you know, you cannot do them as an inpatient. These are outpatient only procedures. And so, you know, I often wonder in the future, is that something, you know, that will happen for, you know, elective PCIs um, or, you know, our low risk PCIs. So I'm not sure how that would, uh, you know, affect staffing from the inpatient standpoint um, moving forward. But I think uh, a lot of questions and sort of we're early in our journey. So definitely more to come, I would think. Absolutely. I think that's a great point and something definitely to look out for. What are your biggest challenges today? So, you know, I would be completely remiss to not mention COVID, (laughs) but I think that we are all very well aware that we're in a global health pandemic. And that, of course, is, I think, on the forefront in terms of challenges for everyone at this point. Um, thinking about pre-COVID and, you know, what do I envision post-COVID are going to be our challenges? You know, one of the biggest areas I, you know, that I find to be a challenge and I think we can all sort of agree with is just the volatility of the healthcare uh, market and legislation in general. I mean, we've seen with COVID things changing from day to day, week to week, month to month in terms of rules and regulations and, you know, uh, payment modeling and reimbursed services. And so, I think over the course of the past several decades between changing administrations and um, those sorts of things, you know, it's a constantly changing and evolving environment. Um, And that can be really hard at times to keep up with. And then not only understand the regulations and the rules that are coming down, but really be able to operationalize those and ensure that we're still providing that seamless care to our patients. Um, You know, there's just been so much change and volatility that I think it can be extremely difficult to navigate. Um, you know, the landscape of, again, the healthcare legislation and market. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that we have to talk about as a healthcare system and, excuse me, as a healthcare, you know, and a healthcare system overall in the United States is that healthcare spending currently, you know, we know is not sustainable. Um, There are various economic models looking at, you know, when are we no longer going to be able to fund, you know, um, different programs like Medicaid, Medicare, things like that. And so, I think it's extremely important, you know, that at the local level, we really start to examine, um, you know, cost containment and and value-based care, again, ensuring that we continue to offer those services that are needed in our communities at a really high level, um, but to make sure that we're doing that at the best of value. Um, And, you know, again, I think we're not going to get um, an answer or one size fits all. So I really do envision that happening at the local level. 
And, you know, there's some changes that I think, you know, healthcare systems across the country are looking to make to really better understand value. Um, and certainly it is not an easy problem to fix. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I know there's just a lot of ins and outs to, to that, especially when looking at some of the, the value-based care aspect of it. And I know, you know, in your role as a quality excellence leader, I'm sure that's front of mind. I'm wondering, you know, for St. Joseph's Mercy Health System in particular, um, how are you looking at that? Where are you in your journey in thinking about cost containment, value-based care? You know, what types of things are you already implementing or, or planning on in the near future? Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things that, you know, I think we try to use data in every single decision that we make, um, you know, whether we're looking at volumes or quality outcomes um, or, you know, payment modeling um, and things like that, really using that data. Where I think we can, you know, have um, where we get a lot of good data are programs, you know, particularly in Michigan, there's something called the Michigan Value Collaborative um, that helps you to kind of benchmark yourself against other hospitals um, in your region or in your state in terms of um, risk-adjusted cost per case analysis. And something like that is really helpful for us. Um, I think one thing that's difficult to do is if you don't have that benchmark data, um, you don't really know, you know, you kind of know how you're performing against yourself year over year, but what does that mean in terms of the bigger picture? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, if you're waiting if, as a healthcare system for the Medicare data to come out, you know, you're already kind of behind the eight ball um, when you're getting that data back. So I think being proactive about data collection um, and then ensuring that, you know, you sort of have programs where you can benchmark um, yourselves against other hospital systems. And that's something that we're constantly, you know, striving to do. And again, examining that information. Um, and that is data that we do have available to us. And certainly if we see outliers and things like that. Um, we would call together, um, you know, committees or leverage existing committees to ensure that we're discussing that data. And again, sometimes, you know, there's opportunity there and sometimes, you know, there's not, but I think it's worth exploring for sure. Got it. That makes sense. How are you thinking about growth within the department? Well, I think, you know, over the past year, I wouldn't say that growth per se has been on the forefront of everyone's mind um, because clearly we've been trying to, you know, navigate this ever-changing sort of, um, you know, pandemic. But I really do think moving forward, and again, when we're getting back to our, I'm going to say new normal because I don't know that we'll ever be back to normal. Um, I really think telehealth is definitely, you know, the way of the future. Um, I think telehealth has a lot of implications. One of them is certainly growth, departmental growth, and otherwise, but. You know, I think with that growth comes some unique opportunities um, to leverage or offer services in areas where, you know, traditionally they haven't been um, provided. And so, you know, really looking at communities where specialty care may be delayed or communities where, um, you know, you're driving hours to see a specialist or cardiologist. You know, there are certainly opportunities, I'm sure, in, in every state to kind of look and see, you know, where can we leverage telehealth to offer, you know, more services to patients that otherwise might not have access um, and so I think, you know, telehealth is, is going to be a strategy moving forward. Again, we'll kind of see what happens with the payment reform. Um, that's, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a to be determined that we're sort of waiting to hear next steps on. Um, but assuming, you know, things are, are pushed forward and hopefully they will be, um, I think that that's going to be a huge opportunity for um, departmental growth. I think the other thing is, is really looking at, um, you know, the needs of the community. Um, so, you know, we've seen historically um, various conferences and things where there's reports that, you know, oh, we had so many CT surgery programs that, you know, shut down this year or things like that. 
And, and really what's come out of that is understanding that, you know, just because we see something, you know, that's new and shiny or a new service or a procedure, you know, do we have the market demographic to support those procedures? Um, and is there something in our community that's not offered to patients? Um, that we can sort of look to offer, um, you know, uniquely um, and grow services that way. So I think that's really important. And of course, you know, always ensuring that we're delivering that value-based quality care. Um, I think obviously making sure that our communities were well-respected in our communities and that the communities know that, you know, um, we care and, and we're here to offer, you know, outstanding services. I think that, you know, even that organic and that word of mouth growth is um, certainly something that, that cannot be overlooked. Absolutely. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging leaders today? Absolutely. So, you know, I want to start with a caveat that I definitely consider myself an emerging leader as well. So I certainly, um, you know, want to lead with that. And I am not an expert, um, but I would love to share, you know, sort of three things that I think help me from day to day um, and I think are solid pieces of, of advice. So first, starting with a quote, um, from Dr. Uh, Williams Edwards Deming, and he was a leader for process improvement, which I'm sure many people listening to this podcast um, are very well aware of. But he had a quote, and it was, in God we trust, all others must bring data. And I just, I, I love that quote, because, you know, what it really says, and, and what it really means, at least to me, is that every decision that we make has to be derived from data. So, you know, as an emerging leader, you know, coming into a new position, or, or you know, looking at a new, um, you know, service or even taking over something, you know, as, as a person of a fresh pair of eyes is ensuring that you have the data you need to drive decisions. Um, I think if you're using data, um, you know, to support your decisions, that's absolutely critically important and you kind of can't go wrong. Um, so one is, you know, use and leverage your data for every single decision that you make um, and ensure that you're, you know, scrutinizing and, and really examining the data prior to, to making decisions. Um, I think the other thing I will say about data is that we do a really good job as clinicians in saying, you know, we have these studies and these studies show us that we need to treat condition X, you know, with Y. Um, and absolutely there's, you know, clinician judgment involved as well. Um, but, you know, using that same level of scientific approach to decision makings and healthcare administration, I think is really important. Um, second, I'll say prioritizing the voice of the customer. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, everyone has a customer. If you're in HR, your customer is your workforce. Um, if you're a clinician, your customer is, is likely your patient and others. You know, in administration, we have many customers as well. Um, but making sure that you get the voice in the customer um, for every decision that you make or every, you know, process that you redesign, I think is critically important. Um, I can tell you that you know, as someone who has a clinical background, sometimes having conversations and making decisions about processes where there's patients um, at the table can feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, to us, I think. And so really kind of involving patients or involving your customer in all the decisions that you make, I really feel is important because they bring such a unique perspective and they know best what it is, you know, what's the problem that they're trying, um, you know, to fix. So I think that's really important. Uh, and then lastly, you know, encouraging creativity. I, I'm definitely a podcast junkie, and I recently um, listened to a podcast by the um, co-CEO of Netflix, Reed um, Hastings, and he wrote a book about sort of the workplace culture of Netflix. And what I took away from that was, you know, you really want to encourage creativity amongst your teams. You don't want to have a team that is afraid to fail. Um, and, you know, we 
work in an environment where things are highly regulated. There's lots of rules. There's tons of regulations. And there's sometimes where failure is definitely not an option. Um, but when we're looking at redesigning services or process improvement or, you know, quality improvement, you know, make sure that you've built a team um, that is not afraid to speak up and say, why don't we try to do something differently? Um, because, you know, you want to foster the environment that creativity is okay. And if you fail, um, you know, you're not a failure. And one thing I'll say that Trinity does really well, I would say is, um, you know, it's a great place to work. And, and one thing I can say that they definitely operationalize is, you know, for example, for employees, you know, they ask, um, you know, what are the problems you see in your in your workplace? And, you know, I think anybody could go into um, a place where someone, you know, has employees and they could give you a laundry list of problems that need to be fixed. But what's sort of unique is that Trinity asks, what are the problems and how do we fix them? And so, again, it's kind of, you know, one, including the voice of the customer, and then two, you know, encouraging that creativity, not just telling us what's the problem, but, you know, making sure that your workplaces, your workers are, you know, empowered to um, make changes and offer suggestions. So I think those would be my, my top three. Amber, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.